Well, welcome to the second week of Antioch's Elements series. Um, Our task during this series is to investigate the natural world to see what we can learn about the spiritual world. And so we've taken four foundational elements uh, that the ancients believed made up uh, the ancient world. And we're going to try and correlate lessons learned from an investigation of those uh, elements to the spiritual world. And so last week, Ken dealt with the earth and land and the implications therein. And this week, we get to tackle wind. So what do we know about wind? Well, we know that wind is uh, defined as air in motion, and uh, we could start talking about that air uh, moving because of changes or differences in atmospheric pressures, and we could talk about those differences in atmospheric pressures being due largely to changes in temperature, and by the time I finish that, you'd be all asleep, and we probably wouldn't come back to hear me speak again, so... What, what else about wind? What is kind of a layman's presentation of wind? Well, we know that wind is a constant. Uh, if you were in central Oregon last night, uh, at least in Bend, you know that the power of the wind was pretty evident. It was ripping, at least my house in the third story of, of this apartment that I live in. It was just ripping apart that building. Not apart that building, but it was blowing pretty hard. <laughs> this would be a pretty good sermon if it did rip apart my building. <laughs> Uh, wind is a constant. There is never a time or a place on earth when wind is not present. It's absolutely necessary and fundamental. An integral element of all of life is this concept of this phenomenon in the natural world known as wind. Um, So wind plays an integral role in those most fundamental systems, one of which is the seasons, Um, another of which is the cycle of the rain that brings life to the earth. Wind is absolutely necessary in the role of the physical world and in the role it plays in the physical world, I know that I've experienced the power of wind on a number of occasions, one uh, of which was I was, I think, 17 or 18, and I decided to try and ride 100 miles on my mountain bike. And so I took the knobby tires off of my mountain bike, and I threw slick tires on it so I could roll a little more efficiently. And I pumped those tires up to 100 PSI, and I took off on the Monterey Peninsula down the Carmel Valley. And I was going to do this giant 100-mile loop. And so I went out 50 or some odd miles, and I turned and all of a sudden started coming back towards my house, which was pretty close to the ocean, up the Salinas Valley. And what hit me in the afternoon? a wind like you wouldn't believe. And I'm going down hills like this in my biggest gear, pushing as hard as I can, and I'm going 11 miles an hour. And it's getting dark, and I'm realizing I'm not going to make it. And so I called my dad, and he came and picked me up. (laughs) So up until about actually last year, I rode my first 100-mile ride. So So wind is extremely uh, powerful. Wind is also refreshing. Many of us have... Sat outside on a hot summer night and just felt that cool breeze come in. It's just a wonderful, wonderful experience. Wind has both power, it has refreshment, um, has destructive characteristics to it. But one thing for sure about wind is it is a constant. Remember our task this morning. Our task is examining the natural world to see what it can teach us about the spiritual world. One thing that wind um, or a lack thereof of wind does is it creates stagnant air. All of us have been in a car or a house somewhere where you're experiencing just a stagnancy, a stuffiness, a lifeless environment that comes when air is not moving. It's not a pleasant environment. So how does this relate to the spiritual world? I think it relates very well to God. 
God is a constant. Just as wind is a constant, God is also constant. Just as wind is constantly moving, God is also constantly moving. He constantly moves from the beginning of Scripture's testimony right through the end, and he continues after the age of the Bible to our present day. And so we should start with a little bit of an investigation of what Scripture has to say about God's movement, and and we'll start with the first verse of your Bible. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth. In Hebrew, um, Bereshit is the first word there, in the beginning. And then it goes on to talk about God and God creating the heavens and God creating the earth. That's actually the title, most people think, of the book of Genesis. And so that would sit above on that ancient scroll that was Genesis. That would sit above the text that our English Bibles start of in verse 2. And so the first verse of your Bible is actually probably uh, Genesis chapter 1. English Bibles, verse 2. And so we begin there this morning. It says, The earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. God is about to begin his creative activity in the world, actually bringing the world into existence. And what is he doing? Just like wind, he is moving, and he's actually using wind to move. It's very interesting. In Hebrew... The ancient, ancient Hebrew mindset has no concept of nature distinct from God. So what does that mean? That means that the modern concept of nature being over here and the laws and cycles and regulations of nature, those, yes, they're one thing in our modern mindset. And then over here we have God and religion and a God we worship. Those two in the modern mindset are completely separate. The ancients had no such concept. The two were one and the same. When the sun rose, it was literally by the hand of God that that sun came up and then that sun came down. When winds blew, it was, they were associated with gods in the ancient world and they were literally probably the mouth breathing of a god, was, which was what was bringing air and wind and the movement up to the earth. No distinction between nature and God. They were both one and the same. And it's also interesting that in our passage here, when it says wind from God swept over the face of, wa- of the waters, that word in Hebrew is ruach. And ruach can mean wind, but it can also mean spirit. And the idea is essentially the same. It is a manifestation of the movement of God. Wind, spirit, movement. Whatever it is, it's coming from God. If it's in the natural world, if it's in, quote, unquote, the religious world, the ancients had no distinction, so it was all God and all God moving. If you delve a little deeper into the book of Genesis, you get to chapter 8 and the great flood. The rains have been coming down for many days, and we see more of God's moving, interestingly enough, through wind. But God, verse 1 of chapter 8, remembered Noah and all the wild animals and all the domestic animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind or a ruach or a spirit blow over the earth and the waters subsided. He remembered that he'd brought this destructive force of rain upon the earth. And in remembering those whom he decided he would save and the animals upon that ark, he decided to send out his movement in the form of wind, in the form of his spirit, to make the waters or cause the waters to subside. That word remembered is interesting. This is the same word used in Exodus chapter 2. When the Israelites are crying out to God... And God hears their groans as they're enslaved in Egypt. And it says he remembers 
his covenant with them, the covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in remembering that covenant, he decides to begin his redeeming activity to deliver the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt. And it's a powerful story, one most of us are familiar with, one where he actually uses his movement, the motion and the flow of God to as an agent of his redeeming activity. And so we see right away in chapter 10, I believe, God using wind to bring the locusts in from the east as part of one of the plagues. We see that most famous story when the Israelites have run out of Egypt after the Passover and they're at the edge of the Red Sea and they cannot cross. And Moses' staff goes up into the air and splits the waters so that the bearing Egyptian army, Pharaoh, won't come down and kill them all. And of course, the Israelites pass through on dry land. And then God really removes, I guess, his wind and causes those waters to come down upon Pharaoh's army. It's not too long after that that the Israelites are in need of food in the desert before they get to the promised land, and God sends a wind to bring quail, which in turn brings meat. So, so you see this process, right? You see in the first couple books of the Bible, God continually moving, continually active in the lives of his people, And he uses wind or motion or movement or his spirit as an agent of his redeeming activity. God's spirit is constantly moving throughout scripture. And um, his spirit in the Old Testament indwelt individuals at specific times in specific circumstances. And so one of the examples we have is the extremely entertaining book of Judges, wherein the Israelites decide they don't need God. And so picture God, you as the audience are God, and the Israelites do what I do. They turn their back on God, and they flee from his freeing principles, and they get themselves into trouble. And in getting themselves into trouble, they're not facing God anymore. They're not enjoying his blessings. They decide to cry out to God, and what does God do? He faithfully sends someone to deliver them, and that individual is indwelt with the Spirit of God. But if you've read the book of Judges, you know that that's a cycle that continues over and over and over again. The people of God rejecting the blessings and the freedom that God has, choosing to take life into their own hands and then getting themselves into trouble. And God constantly over and over. What does he do? He redeems his people. It probably sounds fairly familiar to most of us in here. His spirit was also evident in the life of David, the most famous of all Israelite kings. David had no doubt uh, dwelt upon or depended upon the Spirit of God to gain victory over Goliath, victory in battle, wisdom and decision-making as he ruled for the greater good in the kingdom of Israel. But David blew it at a point in his life. I think Second Samuel chapter 11 tells the story of David and Bathsheba, an adulterous affair in which David and Bathsheba became pregnant, and David ended up um, plotting uh, and, and really sending out the order to have Bathsheba's husband Uriah killed um, so that he could cover up his sin. And, and mid-deep, uh, waist-deep, I guess you'd say, in the mess that he'd gotten himself into, he prays one of our more famous prayers in the Bible in Psalm chapter 51. And so if you turn there, we read starting in verse 10, a very famous verse, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. He's saying, I've totally blown it. And these are the words expressing how sorry I am, how much I desire to be right with you again, God. And verse 11 says, do not cast me away from your presence. And here's our verse. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. David had seen the movement of God in his life. And he was, he was feeling that his decision had jeopardized God's ability to move powerfully through him. And so he prays this prayer asking God to have that spirit 
uh, continue to reside with him. In the New Testament, it is uh, a powerful, it's the same spirit, the same movement of God that is a powerful agent in Christ's ministry. He's uh, at the Jordan River and John the Baptist has just baptized him and he looks up into heaven and he sees the spirit, it says in the text, coming down and descending upon him like a dove. And then in some of the gospel um, uh, editions of this story, he, he hears a voice that says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And what follows this amazing event in the gospels is a ministry of God through Jesus by the power of his spirit that allows God's redemption to be known to the people of Israel, to be known through Christ's teaching as he teaches a proper way to understand the Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures, a way that is freeing to those who are oppressed by the religious elites of the day, a a ministry that is characterized by many healings and miracles, feeding of thousands of people, water changed into wine, an amazing uh, ministry, we would say, of power, of movement, of motion of God, carried out by God's Spirit. It's that same spirit that Jesus promises to send his believers uh, after he, dis- he ascends into heaven. So in the book of Acts, we have recorded the sending of the Holy Spirit, the New Testament calls it. The movement of God now takes on the manifestation of the characteristic of this Holy Spirit. The disciples, uh, the apostles, the 12 uh, now of Christ are gathered in a room and the Holy Spirit comes down in a very powerful story uh, on the day of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost is a commemoration of that event that we talked about just a few moments ago in the Old Testament, the Exodus event or the Passover event just before the Israelites came out of Egypt. And so in comparing the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see that the Old Testament has its powerful God act. That is the Exodus. That's the central act in the book of the Old Testament of God redeeming and saving his people. And after 50 days, in fact, after that redeeming act of the Exodus, the law is given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And you picture the tablets in Charlton Heston's arms, I guess. And um, those are the images that come with us when we commemorate Pentecost, when the Jewish people commemorate the giving of the law. So God redeems in the Old Testament through the Exodus. And 50 days later, he gives his people a gift. The gift of the law, which would govern them and and really had no intention of restricting their freedoms, but actually were laws that would provide them with more freedom if they followed them. Well, that's the major redeeming act in the Old Testament, and Pentecost 50 days later commemorates that. In the New Testament, what is our major God act? Well, it's the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, his ministry, his sacrifice, and his resurrection. And 50 days after that, we have another gift from God. God redeems us as we're enslaved really to ourselves in a spiritual slavery through the ministry, life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And then 50 days later, he gives us a gift. He gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is essentially the movement of God. Because God will continue to move on this earth. And now instead of God's spirit dwelling, God's movement dwelling upon individuals at specific times and specific circumstances... We have all the time access to that, constantly an access to the spirit that as believers dwells within us and uh, is our or God's agent for movement within the world. Well, without God's spirit, without God's wind, there is essentially a lack of life, a stagnancy that falls over 
uh, communities or environments, and God knew that, and that is why you see his spirit constantly active in the Old Testament and constantly active in the New, and then constantly active for thousands of years after the age of the Bible, if we will. And I think all of us have seen God move or act in our lives um, in probably at least one time or another, seen him work in a major way. Um, But a lot of times we don't take note to him working in the smaller ways. And so a question for us this morning is, what does it look like when the Spirit of God moves through you? What does it look like when God takes motion in your life and in your world? And Paul gives us a supreme example of this in the book of Galatians. So if you turn there, we'll we'll spend a couple minutes in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians is a letter written by Paul to the church, to the Christians at Galatia. And the hot button issue, the hot topic at this time is what to do with those non-Jew Christians. Remember, Christianity started actually as a Jewish religion. And so we know that because Jesus was a Jew and Jesus' 12 disciples were Jews and most of his followers throughout his early ministry were Jews. And a major tenet of the Jewish faith is following the Jewish law what to eat, when to eat, certain uh, restrictions, of course, on diet and how you spend your time and what you mix together. And these were all very important for the Jewish people living in their world. But how important were they for the non-Jews, the people of the rest of the world, if you were? The Bible uses this phrase, phrase Gentiles. What do do we have to do now that we as non-Jews have decided to accept this extremely powerful and potent message of God? through Christ, what, what do we do? And so Paul addresses that issue of whether or not non-Jews have to follow the law, excuse me, um, in the book of Galatians. And the issue he's just finished tackling in the book of Galatians, where we are in five, chapter 5, is what to do with that newfound freedom that we have, um, that ability to walk away from God after entering a relationship with him, And know that God is always merciful, always gracious, always forgiving. Um, And some individuals during Paul's day were taking full advantage of that freedom. And so they were royally blowing it over here, getting themselves into all kind of trouble, um, causing all sorts of pain for themselves. And Paul's saying, listen, there's a better way. Um, Don't abuse your freedom like that. And so we'll start in... Verse 16 of chapter 5, and our Bibles probably all read, live by the Spirit. This morning, I'd like to, just for the sake of of argument, I'd like to replace Spirit here with the movement of God. And then a couple uh, words later, you'll see the word flesh, and I'm going to replace that with maybe a more modern term, self. So here's how 16 would read. Live by the movement of God, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the self. For what the self desires is opposed to the movement of God, and what the movement of God desires is opposed to the self. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. Go down to verse 19. Now the works of the self are obvious, and Paul is going to go into a list that characterizes a life missing the movement of God. A life missing the motion of God. God is not active and moving in the life of an individual who manifests these type of characteristics. And so here is the list in verse 19. The works of the self are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness. This word uh, escapes us. I actually had to look it up in a dictionary. 
licentiousness means um, a selfish and aggressively selfish um, pursuit of desires for the self. So, so you're aggressively pursuing desires with really no moral conduct whatsoever, no concern of what your actions and your decisions, how they will affect other people. That's what licentiousness means, especially in the area of sexual issues. Verse 20, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you, Paul says, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is speaking to a group of believers here. A group of believers who have stifled the movement and the motion of God, the spirit of God in their lives. And these are the kind of things that their lives are manifesting. This is a brutal list. In a couple, couple minutes here, I'm going to read you a, a more modern um, translation of this passage because some of these things like sorcery escape us a little bit. Most of us don't probably experience too much sorcery. Um, but this nonetheless is a, is a brutal list. With, um, I guess you'd say if a, an individual you were friends with or an associate with was manifesting these kind of characteristics, you would run, I would think. These are not fun. These are not fun things. Um, but if you kind of jump over the sorcery and then you jump over maybe licentiousness or something like that, you get to some other ones in here like idolatry, um, jealousy, anger, quarrels, and, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, oh, there I am. That, that list, I guess I am in this list. It kind of has a shock factor at the beginning, doesn't it? Starts talking about fornication, impurity, licentiousness, and we're like, oh, this is not my list. I can kind of blow this off. And then the ears start tingling a little bit more when it starts talking about the quarrels and the divisions and such. Verse 22, by contrast, and thank God there is a contrast, the fruit of the movement of God is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And that is the breath of fresh air list. That is the not at all stagnant, stifling room. That is the wind blowing at full force, just ripping through the trees. And, and you're smelling the pine and you're smelling the juniper. And it's just like, oh, that is so refreshing. The individuals who manifest those types of characteristics, those are the kind of individuals that you want to surround yourself with. I mean, you just think of that list. You ponder it for a second. The motion of God, this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like when God moves in the life of a believer. It may not be the parting of the Red Sea. It may not be changing water into wine or feeding 5,000 people. But the Spirit of God, the movement of God is no less evident in the lives of his people and in the lives of you. It just takes on a manifestation that looks like this. Is there love in your life? Is there joy in your life? Peace, patience. Are you kind? Are you generous? Are you faithful? Are you gentle? Do you exercise self-control? Your answer to that question determines how much God is moving through you, how much you are experiencing the freeing, life-giving motion of God as he, like the wind, constantly moves. Let me read you a more modern um, presentation of this text. Eugene Peterson, um, in, his, in his translation of the Bible, 
um, brings some of the terms up to date a little bit. And it's not something you would necessarily, you wouldn't read the message to say, this is authoritatively what that passage meant in its original context. Rather, the message serves us as a wonderful tool because it provides us with a more modern, nuanced, maybe actually what it means for you and your life um, a little bit easier than it would maybe wrestling with uh, the original context and some of the, I guess you'd say some of the more loaded language that we use in the church. Um, there's a, the words like licentiousness and idolatry are, are language, are words you hear in the church. And um, what I'm going to read to you now are not as churchy words. So this is Peterson's version of what Paul would have said to that church in Galatia. He says, my counsel is this, live freely, animated and motivated by God's spirit, by God's movement. Then you won't feed the compulsions of selfishness, for there is a root of sinful self-interest in us that is at odds with a free spirit, just as the free spirit is incompatible with selfishness. These two ways are, of life are antithetical, in other words, opposite, so that you cannot live at times one way and at times another way according to how you feel on any given day. Why don't you choose to be led by the spirit and so escape the erratic compulsions of a law-dominated existence? Paul goes on to say it's obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. And, and right there, you all of us should be thinking, well, what is it like in my life when I try and get my way all the time? It's obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, Magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied once, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or to be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community, and Paul says, I could go on. This isn't the first time I've warned you, you know, if you use your freedom this way, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. But what happens when we live God's way? Well, he brings gifts into our lives, much the same way an orchard uh, bears fruit. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that basic holiness permeates things and people, we find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, but we're rather able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. I think his um, translation of that text is very appropriate um, and allows us to see it maybe in language that we are more familiar with today. God, like the wind, is constantly moving. Um, he's a constant force throughout Scripture. He is always moving in the direction of redemption, of wanting to see his people experience more and more of his life-giving freedom, um, refreshment, energy. He's not at all wanting to stifle or to present you with a stagnant environment in which you feel like the life is being squeezed out of you. He's saying... I'm moving all the time. Let me move through you. Let your life manifest that second list of love and peace and patience and so on and so on. So 
We examine, remember, the natural world. We see wind, our element for this morning, and we see it move uh, constantly. By its very definition, air in motion, it, it is a constant, and there's never a time or a place when it's not moving, when it's not present. The same with God moving powerfully throughout Scripture, and the same in all of our lives as believers. Um, so if God is constantly moving, if you have entered a, into a relationship with God, um, how much is he moving through you? Or maybe how much are you moving? Are you experiencing motion in your life? Um, or are you stifled right now? Uh, I mean, would, would stagnancy be a word that describes some of the habits you have or some of the decisions you've been making or, or the general theme of your life right now? Stagnancy versus movement. Um, stifling versus freedom. Energy. God is constantly moving and he constantly desires to move through us. It's an interesting thing about the wind. The wind is extremely powerful, um, but it can be diverted. I, I go backpacking and one of the tasks when we're backpacking as we set up camp and we build, uh, when we set up our tent is to build shelter from the wind because the wind will tear those aluminum tent poles and that nylon apart. I remember sleeping one time out a storm in California, and there's four of us crammed into a two-person tent. Talk about stifling air. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's so gross. And the wind is just ripping down the mountains, and we could actually hear it on the sides of this valley wall. And that tent was a good three feet off of my face. And the winds, because we didn't have time to build an adequate wind wall, that tent was coming down and hitting us in the face as we were lying on the ground. And at about 6 in the morning after 13 hours in the tent, uh, the tent finally, the pole broke and the whole tent ripped open. We decided it was time to go home. The idea of building that wind wall is to divert the power of the wind so that you don't feel its effect. It's obviously a ludicrous endeavor to think that you could stop the wind. Although that would be one solution, right? You could just stop the wind. That would be nice. You wouldn't have to build your wind wall. But that would be quite an endeavor. And so instead, we build a wind wall to protect our tents from the prevailing direction of the wind. And in so doing, we divert or deflect the power of the wind so that we don't feel it as much. Is the wind still there? Absolutely. It's the same with God, if you think about it. God is constantly moving. The full force of God is completely evident in the world. But we have a capacity and a tendency to set up wind walls, or maybe we call them God walls, areas in our life that block the movement and the motion from God in our lives. It's, it's a dangerous process because instead of experiencing the movement and the life-giving air and spirit of God, what ends up happening? We breed a stifling, stagnant environment in our lives. And so I guess the challenge for us this morning is to ask ourselves, where in my life am I stifling the movement of God right now? Where's my wall that's, that, that I've set up to block his movement? I, I know what some of mine are. I mean, you asked me that question. I know right away what those things that I'm holding on to so tightly because I'm worried, oh, my sense of self or my identity is wrapped up in those. I'm not giving those to you, God. I'm not going to knock that wall down so you can really move through me. I feel like this is safer. 
like I'm experiencing more life. What's so interesting, and C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, so eloquently describes this, is, is we often struggle so mightily to hold on to those types of things. And we're looking at God, fighting him, fighting him. And all of a sudden, we decide to let go of it. We look down and what's in our hands? Nothing. I mean, in comparison with what you gain when you give up those kind of things, God and his freedom and his joy and his love and peace and all of those characteristics manifest in your life, the thing you're holding on to is nothing. They don't play on the same field. And so my question to all of us this morning is, well, God is constantly moving just like the wind. He desires to constantly move through you. Where in your life have you built up a wall that is not allowing God to move through you for you to experience that movement? Because um, he'll continue to move. He, he will continue to be active and active presence in this world. Um, so my challenge to you, I guess, finally, is when you look at the wind... Instead of being the modern or the postmodern that you are and your scientific understanding of the world and seeing the wind over there and being like, oh, those are superheated molecules that are transferring to a lower pressure system. Instead of doing that, you transfer yourself a couple thousand years back and you pretend you're an ancient Hebrew, for instance. And when you look at that wind, you actually picture the hand of God with a billow or something like that directing that wind in your direction. And you think about God as an active presence in your world. And you ask yourself, am I allowing God's wind like this natural wind is blowing through me? Am I allowing the wind of God, the movement of God, the spirit of God to be manifested in my life? Certainly hope that's a challenge that we can all uh, appreciate this time of year as the winds will be ripping. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your spirit, your movement, uh, your motion. We thank you for um, the offering that we're about ready to give, that um, like the wind, we don't always see exactly where uh, it goes, but we do know that there are effects to, to our offerings. And I just pray that um, you would guide us, guide our steps, help us to see you in everything, and help us to not trade a stifling, stagnant existence for your freeing, life-giving motion. In your name we pray. Amen.